an individual who has tested positive for COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, has identified you as a close contact. It is imperative that you promptly take the following actions to protect your health and the health of others. Please self-isolate immediately in your home. Limit your contact with other members of your household as much as possible. Do not leave your home under any circumstances. If you are showing symptoms such as sore throat, cough, fever, body aches, shortness of breath, please call 811 to report your symptoms. You are especially at risk because you have a tiny wiener. It is so small and therefore you will become much sicker than an individual who had all let's say even an average sized or slightly below average sized weenie because your weenie is so tiny. The CDC is reporting nearly a 100% death rate for people like you who have small wieners. This is especially troublesome for you because your weenie is the smallest weenie in the whole world. You have a tiny wiener. What the hell is that? Yes, my name is Brian. What would you say you do here? Stone on air. I'm so happy I could die. Uh, welcome in, everybody. I'm so happy I could die. I'm so happy. I'm so happy since you left me. I could die because I'm so happy. Yeah, just kill me now. Welcome in, everybody, to the supposed for-profit venture known as the Stone On Air Podcast. It is a day late this week. If Indeed, I am going to try to stick to the every Wednesday download, which will be... My goal going forward, it is the final day of one of the worst months ever. It's supposed to be hashtag my month. It's supposed to be my time. Hell, it's not supposed to be over yet. It was supposed to start before the month even began and end after the month had concluded. And it never happened. My month never materialized, and this is not just my month. This is many people's favorite time of the year, and it has come and gone, and for the first time in the history of my life, I am saying good riddance to April. Sayonara, bro. Get the hell out of here. Don't let it hit you in the ass on the way out the door. Had enough of you have a feeling I might be saying the same thing about May, though I don't know. We'll see. Uh, that'll be portions of what I talk about here in the first segment of the show. The second half of the first segment, I will talk coronavirus things. And the second segment of the show, it's going to be just a two-segment podcast this week. I'm going to go back down the road of uh, things from Facebook, things from Twitter, things from social media, just to pass the time that people are doing. Last week, I did the five perfect movies. As a matter of fact, I think I'm going to do five more perfect movies next week. But today, in the second segment of the show, is going to be my favorite 10 albums, my favorite 10 records, if you will. Not the best of all time, not the most amazing, not the most influential to anybody else or any other musicians or genres of music. Just 10 of the top records that influenced me directly, and I'll lay out what the criteria for that list is as we get into that segment later on. So just between now and then, a bunch of rambling and just my thoughts on the current state of affairs overall. Um, It is the 30th of April, so it is time to go through my notes to self on my phone and find anything I haven't gotten to. So I'll cram a few of those into this show and start my May notes to self for the coming weeks and uh, months and years and the rest of my damn life. Hopefully, 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 hopefully we'll have a new The Project 423 podcast this weekend. I have talked to Ryan Oyer, local musician here. I've had him on the show a few times over the years. It's been quite some time. He has a new record coming out on May 7th, which is, as I pull up my calendar really quick, that is uh, Thursday, week from right now. And I'd like to have him on this weekend via Zoom, I guess. That's what everybody else is doing. 
I've only used Skype for video conferencing, and I don't like it. So I'm actually going to figure out how to use Zoom between now and this weekend. And if every other numbnut in town and in the world and in the country can figure out how to do a, uh, a live video conference uh, recording for uh, all to see, surely I can figure it out between now and the weekend, and uh, hopefully that'll be a thing. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty certain we'll make that work. If nothing else, we'll do it by the phone, but uh, we'll wait and see how that goes. One of the notes to self I have from a week ago was I saw somebody talking about the L.A. riots. That would be 28 years ago, starting yesterday, the 29th of April. That was when the Rodney King verdict came down. Of course, all four of the officers that were clearly beating the shit out of a man, whether he was being unlawful to what degree is... Not the point. They beat the holy hell out of them. Anyway, they were acquitted on the 29th, which created um, hundreds of, maybe not hundreds of millions, but probably it was. it A lot of damages, a lot of death, a lot of destruction in South Central L.A. And I was going to do a whole segment on it because I hadn't thought about that in a long time. And that was such a pivotal moment of the early 90s leading to the O.J. trial and the Clinton administration and just what was a wild decade. And it just got me thinking it's another one of those examples of life is always effed up. Things are always difficult and so dangerously uh, scary. And all the time we get wrapped up in this is the most important election ever. Now more than ever, we're in these times. This never been more important. No, it's always important. Every election is important. Every generation, every decade, every era has its own problems. It's never like just okay and fantastically wonderful. It's uh, it's it's like the the Wilco song. Come on, children, you're acting like children. Every generation thinks it's the end of the world. I can't remember the name of the song, but it's fantastic. Nothing is any more dangerously out of control within the you know kings and queens style life that we live here in America than it's been in a gener- in generations and generations and a hundred some odd years. It's always a mess. The world's always on fire. It's always burning. Speaking of another song, we didn't start the fire. It's always burning since the world's been turning said Billy Joel. So uh, anyway, I decided not to go down that road because I don't know. I don't, I'm not exactly sure. I just decided not to. All right. So the coolest thing and the worst idea, the segments I would like to do every week on the show, I've got to combine the coolest thing and the worst idea. It is a guy named Joey Molinaro and a dude named Ben Palazzi. I think is how you say it. They're just Twitter clowns. And the dude Joey now works for, what is it, Barstools? I think that's what it's called. Anyway, it's just goofy, kooky, stupid crap. And this was following the NFL draft, which I actually thought was pretty cool the way it was pulled off on TV. Still bored me to death because I don't care about college kids getting picked to NFL teams that I don't care about. But it was overall a good production. But this was one of those couple of dumb bros talking to each other with puns and play on words uh, right after the NFL draft. This is today's both comboed, Coolest thing and worst idea. How about that draft this weekend, man? Uh, no, no draft for me. You just not into it, or? Yeah, I'm more of a uh, bobble guy. <laughs> this guy, here we go. Hey, how about that uh, Detroit pick? When his name popped up, I could have sworn they were lying. <laughs> hey, Green Bay got a QB? Crazy. Hey, their fans not too jord in love with that one. <laughs> really, though, I thought it was a stretch. Hey, we're like a Lambo leap. <laughs> yes, I was hoping that because that's what they do there. Oh man, how about that uh, that Lamb guy that the Cowboys picked? His girl tried to take his phone on national TV, dude. Yeah, he wasn't gonna let her uh, see these texts. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the way that he took that phone back, you know who should have picked him? Oh. The Steelers. <laughs> I don't know, but being on two phones all day, hopefully he's got a couple uh, chargers. <laughs> hopefully, man. <laughs> Not a lot of battery life there. Uh, I got to go, though, man. I'm going to jet out of here. All right, sounds good, Chief. Hey, tell your mom I said, hey, she's a total saint. I will. She loves to hear people raving about her. <laughs> there we go. All right, man. Yeah, let's uh, let's get back to work. Yeah, lock it in here. We got to pay the bills. <laughs> so that's some people are going to think that's the most asininely stupid thing they've ever heard, and some people just won't get it. 
and uh, that's fine. I just thought it was funny, and I watch these guys just act like clowns on Twitter all the time, and it's just making fun of the average moron and doing it in a moronically stupid way. It's pretty ironic, actually, uh, but it's good stuff. Anyway, Joey Molinero and Ben Palazzi, if I am saying his name correctly. All right, let's see. A quarantine programming update before I get to the... Latest of my thoughts on the uh, COVID-19 and the shutdown currently where we are at. My television programming has continued to branch out to things I haven't seen before. The other day, I was uh, watching The Office reruns with my girlfriend because that's one of her favorite shows. And if there's ever anything we need to just go to, we'll go to The Office. And I got to thinking, I love Ricky uh, Gervais. I think it was a Gervais, Gervais, Gervais. I've always said Ricky Gervais, whatever. I think he's fantastic. I think he's hilarious. And he's the one who created that show, of course, in uh, the UK. And I was like, I've never seen even the single episode of the original Office. So I turned it on from Netflix or Hulu or wherever and realized there's only two seasons to this show. And the show is virtually, the first few episodes I've watched, exactly the same as the American version and it's fascinating to see the different characters acted by different types of comedians from different sides of the world. I thought it was fascinating, and I'm going to watch a bunch more this week. And just think about how much money Ricky Gervais is making off of this. He started a show that lasted two seasons on the BBC. It started back in like 2001 or two or something like that. And then the uh, the American version starts around 2004 or five with... Um, What's his name? Why am I blanking? Uh, uh, the, 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 uh, Steve Carell. Steve, right, Steve Carell. And it just takes off. And people fall in love with these characters, Pam and Dwight and Pam's love interest, what's his, Jim, and all the characters, Mindy. It just goes on and on and on. And Ricky Gervais has been sitting back for nearly two decades r- just raking in royalties on this show as the creator And now as it's just exploding into syndication and streaming services, that guy has got it figured out. Another show I stumbled on the other day, which I really, really liked, is from the Smithsonian Channel. It's called Aerial America. And here's how dumb I am. The first first I saw that as I was flipping through on Hulu Live, I thought, Aerial America? That must be the history of America in, uh, in, in flight, in American... um, you know, uh, air travel or something like that. No, 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 no. It's aerial footage of states, of areas of America. And I immediately was uh, just sucked in because in no time I realized just how ignorant I am to the actual landscape of the United States. I haven't done a lot of traveling. Even if you have, it's still difficult to understand the exactly what the landscape looks like. I believe I watched uh, three episodes, at least two. One was Virginia. I was hoping they'd do a Tennessee because that landscape I know the best. But there was Virginia, then there was Delaware, and uh, whatever was next door to Delaware, one of their neighboring states. And Maryland was the other one, just three in a row. I was hoping it was going to be an all-dayer. And there was so much on the coastline and so much of the overall landscape of the states that I just didn't know. Just because you know the you know, the capital because you answered it correctly on a quiz doesn't mean you ac- actually really understand the landscape of an area of the country. And I thought it was really, really, really cool. Uh, the television show I've been telling you about for the last couple of weeks that I am getting deep into now, almost two seasons through, The Handsmaid's Tale, is... One of the most heartbreaking, like constant, consistent, heartbreaking dialogue and just situational show I have ever watched. It almost never lets up. It's so good. It's so captivating and so sad. Uh, it's totalitarian rule. It's uh, I'll let you do the research if you want to do it on your own. In, in modern day America with the United States being overthrown, it is fascinating it's fantastic it is so good i cannot wait i hope i get to watch a couple more episodes and finish up season two tonight and then i'll finish season three by the end of next week and then that'll get me caught up with the show it is just heartbreaking like if it's almost i was telling my girlfriend i was telling Brittany, if this show doesn't stay good if like if the if the, the the writing doesn't stay really good i'm going to have to stop watching this because it is that disturbing 
at times, but because the writing and the uh, the overall flow is so good, based off a, a book from the 1980s. If you're looking for something new, I would suggest it. If you're wanting something breezy and fluffy and fun, wrong place to go. This is going to be an unpopular take, but it's something I've thought about for a long time. I was cruising through channels and just saw The Goonies on one of the uh, cable channels through Hulu. And I watched it because there was nothing else on. And it made me realize, finally, I'm just going to say it out loud. It's such an annoying movie. Like, it has so many portions of it that are so fun and funny and good. And I've been watching this movie since I was... I mean, really basically the same age as the kids in the movie, maybe a little bit older. And I've always thought there's just something about it that annoys me. And I I don't know. I just don't like it that much. And then I'm flipping through the channels and I saw the movie Kingpin. Remember that piece of crap from the 1990s with Bill Murray and uh, Woody Harrelson and uh, uh, Cousin Eddie from Vacation? Which one is that? Which br- bridges is that? Anyway, that guy. Or no, wait, is he a bridge? Whoever the hell he is, Cousin Eddie. And uh, I, <laughs> that movie is so stupid, it's ridiculous, and uh, I love it. So I don't know. It just depends on who you ask on anything. So um, one more thing here real quick from my notes that I never got to on the phone. Uh, Nova Scotia, did you guys even bat an eye, even glance at the killing spree that happened up in Canada, what, just a week or two ago? I don't, I don't even have my print off. I don't. Oh, there it is. No, there it is. Domestic assault may have triggered Canadian rampage that left 22 dead. A 12-hour rampage through this small area of Nova Scotia with a guy who apparently was dressed up in police uh, police gear, had a, uh, a car, an automobile, a vehicle that resembled a patrol car, maybe had the markings of it. Um and just went around terrorizing people for 12 some odd hours and kept and got away with it until the end with a shootout and he got killed himself. I, I, that's about all I know because I didn't pay attention to it either. And it's just wild that a story like that gets very, very little to absolutely what would it feel like, basically, no attention whatsoever. Okay, all right, so let's get to the second half of this segment here, which is going to be mostly coronavirus conversation or things that are somewhat related to it. I don't want to do this every week uh, because it's boring to talk about a pandemic um, every week. But here recently, there have been developments and there have been things that are worth talking about. And uh, so I'll spend a little bit of time on that here and then I'll get into my top 10 albums most influential albums, uh, complete fluff and uh, just uh, easy breezy on the way out here in just a few. So we will start with, uh, I made a Walmart run the other day. And in certain places that are quote unquote essential businesses, certain areas, certain segments of those businesses, mainly I'm talking about food service, they're not all available like uh, hot bars in most like uh, you can go to Whole Foods and shop. But you're not going to get anything off the hot bar or the juice bar or probably even maybe even the sushi bar. I'm not sure. Certainly not the salad bar or anything like that. In the uh, the Subway restaurants and some of the other, uh, what they call it, convenience food restaurants, uh, fresh squeezed lemonades and juices that you would normally get aren't there. Now, the fountain machine is there because that's an easy just plug in the syrup thing and go. But uh, specifically, South Broad Subway doesn't have lemonade. And I like to get lemonade mixed with some Sprite. And uh, I've gone there a couple times in the last five, six weeks, and it's not there. Because they're the unnecessary aspects of the essential business. And there's no reason to create more uh, potential for uh, contamination in certain areas. Why can't we do that everywhere? Why can't we do that in, let's just say, Walmart and the electronics division, right? What is essential about the totally crappy go to get some DVDs for two cents a piece or super cheap TV or whatever else they have in their electronics department? Why is that not roped off? Why is that still part of an essential business where people are out spending money? I don't know. Maybe people from the, remember the joke from last week? Of the, hey, look, John J. J. Trump, Donnie Bucks bought me a new TV. 
You know how many people I saw wheeling around buggies with massive TVs inside of those buggies in this essential business at Walmart this past weekend? Uh, it wasn't a half dozen, but it was over half of that. I'd say about four, maybe even a fifth. Like, oh, wait, let me, looking at my wrist as if there's a watch there. That's right. I got my stimulus, quote unquote, money this past week. That person probably did too. And I know I'm being very judgmental and stroking with a wide, generalized brush, but that just got me, you know, things that make you go, hmm, kind of things. And while we're on the subject of uh, contamination, a, uh, a little bit further on what I was talking about last week with the idiocy that is the way people are wearing latex gloves to supposedly, as so they think, keep them safe. I talked about it last week about how if you're not changing these gloves out constantly, then the wearer of these gloves are potentially and very possibly maybe even likely carrying way more contaminants than if that person just had their bare hands because the chances are maybe that they would wash their hands more often. But when you have the latex gloves on, you feel that person feels invincible. Like, okay, now I'm protected when I'd say it's the exact opposite. And while I'm not scared of any of this, I'm just trying to make sense of what I see out and about. And I'll give you a perfect example. One of my favorite places to eat in the city, which I have forgotten about because I haven't been there in so long. I've been there now two or three times in the last two or three weeks. I'm not going to tell you who it is because that's not the point. I'm not mad at them. But this was going down over the course of uh, this Sunday evening that I went to go grab food and a drink and try to create a uh, an evening out, which it was cold that day out of nowhere, and that sucked. But anyway, so I have called my order in. I park right nearby, right there about half a block away, and I walk up to the little makeshift counter that most restaurants have made, and I order a drink while I'm waiting for the food, and I pay for my tab. Okay, all good. Now, by the time during the time that I'm doing this, Two others walk up, maybe even a third, but certainly two, a couple. They order a couple of beers. My food's not there yet. My drink is made. I pay my tab. These two get their beers. They pay their tab. Then before all of this is done amongst us getting beers and paying for them, my food is done quicker than I expected and brought to me. Now, everything I just mentioned right there all took place in a very efficient, quick and a very satisfying manner. Nobody was irritated. Nobody thought uh, this is not going well. Nobody's thinking this is taking too long. None of this. Everything's fine, except for one thing. One thing that I couldn't take my eyes off of, and maybe it was just confirmation bias and just a way to make a point. The guy who was handling all of this, working his ass off, calling people by their first names. He called me Brian more than once as he's looking at the tab, being totally thankful for the business. Guess what he had on the entire time? Latex gloves. All right? The same latex gloves the entire time. He touched a minimum of two people's debit cards, maybe a third, poured a minimum of two pints of beer, made a minimum of one cocktail, which meant he handled at least one bottle and one gun with the tonic on it, because I got a gin and tonic as always. He handled food that came from somebody from the from the, the kitchen, so a minimum of two people touched that. And all of this happened with this dude wearing the same latex gloves. Nothing was overly sanitary or safe about that. Now, I don't think he needed to have them on. I don't think that he needed to wash his hand before he touched everything. That's for up for everybody else to decide or care about, because I don't. I left there, took my food, took my drink, had myself a time, as good a time as you can have in the times we're living in now. But I'm telling you, that's the perfect example. That is, if anything, more dangerous than just using your own damn human hands. And that's the whole thing. I don't think there's anything dangerous overall about any of this. And I just need to know why you do what you do. What people's motivation is. That's what I want to know. The answer's in the back of the book. I don't need the answer. I need to see your work. That's all. No big deal. Move on from there.
Okay, as I am now virtually 25 minutes into the show, I want to keep this one around 40-ish, and uh, I have a ton left to do on this that I think will be fine to hold off and do a little bit more next week from some of the bigger events uh, thoughts that I have. But the bottom line is where a lot of this is going, and I will hold off on the big events because none of that will change between now and next week. But I, I will just quickly say and maybe maybe uh, stretch out a little bit more for the first show in May is that it is time to reopen. It's time to stop being um, shut down and locked down. And um, I am I'm going to irritate some of my liberal friends. I'm going to make some of my conservative friends think, oh, hey, he's finally coming around. I I, I am certainly it, it would feel like I am way too conservative or certainly at least moderate, but some would even say conservative, which I don't think would be very accurate. But I'm certainly way too moderate for a lot of my liberal friends, and I am way too liberal for a lot of my conservative friends. And it throws me into kind of this gray area a lot of the time. I uh, I don't go against the grain just to be contrarian. I really don't. And But I do pride myself on political, ideological... Uh, moderation, I, I I do, but it's time to stop this lockdown stuff. Like enough already. This is not a mandate, too. By the way, anybody you know, or if it happens to be you, my incredibly awesome, fantastic listener, or people you know, or your parents, or your loved ones, or friends who think this is just devastating, where this is going to be terrible. Listen, it's not a mandate. You don't have to go get your hair cut. Okay, your neighbor who who is scared doesn't have to go sit in a Wendy's and get lunch, right? I can if I want, which is kind of what we do around here in America, but you don't have to. And I, the hypocrisy will be so fun to watch from all the people on their social media bullhorns, so mad, so scared, so alarmist, that if we start opening up parks and opening up... The, you know, America, that that's going to be the detriment to uh, our, our wellness and our health in this country. And then watch them all. Watch them all pour onto Walnut Street Bridge. Watch them all pour into Coolidge Park. Because we all know that is what's going to happen. And if somebody is scared and somebody has uh, health concerns and uh, limitations within the, their immune systems or of a certain ages, that those people don't have to go out. They can continue to shelter in place. That that doesn't change. The difference is I don't have to do it also. The damage has been done to this economy overall, and it's going to take a long time to get it back to where we want it. And I think slowly starting to reopen America like many states have done is exactly what should happen. And I will likely spend... A lot more time on that next week. I have a ton of numbers from the swine flu, H1N1, from 10 years ago. Uh, data from a, uh, a, a doctor. He is, just to get it out there exactly, a neuro radiologist from Stanford University Medical Center saying, stop the panic, end the total isolation. I'll touch on that at another time here into the near future. And um, let's just go on from here. And see what happens. I am uh, I am on board with that. Coming up next, my 10 most influential full-length records, full-length albums from uh, spanning from before I was born to just around eight or nine years ago. I am looking forward to this. Another one of those social media hashtag trends that I said, screw it. I won't do it on social media. I'll do it on the podcast. And I will do it coming up next. Stone on Air will be right back. He's cool. Stoneonair.com. Rob, it's your turn. Okay, I feel kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Mm. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit off of Nevermind. Oh, no, Rob, that's not obvious enough. Not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up... Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat. 
Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though and not on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection. The song is Radiation oh, Ruling the Nation. Kind of a new record. Very nice, Rob. A sly declaration of new classic status slipped into a list of old safe ones. Very pussy. Couldn't you be any more obvious than that, Rob? How about, uh, I don't know, The Beatles? How about fucking, fucking Beethoven? Track one, side one of the Fifth Symphony. How can someone who has no interest in music own a record store? <laughs> I love it. High fidelity. Jack Black and John Cusack. This is a brand new release from Oasis. Noel Gallagher found it during quarantine over the last five, six weeks on a compact disc from some session he forgot about and officially released it last night at midnight. I guess releasing it just technically means making it available to YouTube because that's where I found it. song is called Don't... Ah, hell. Don't Stop. I think it's Don't Stop. We'll listen to it for a sec. Oasis indeed does make a or an appearance on my top 10 most influential records of my life, which depending on what portion of my life you ask me could be completely different, but this is what I came with, came up with this past week or so. Lazy days, sunny rays, oh God. sip of some gin and tonic and let's get rolling here so of course this is going along uh, with the same thing that people are doing on primarily Facebook but I'm sure it's on Twitter as well top 10 albums I see a lot of musicians doing it as a way that it discusses what's influenced them from their standpoint of writing music this is not that this is um, just influenced me in any way that mattered that had long lasting effect and I have my criteria that I made here, the top 10 albums criteria. Um, I have to genuinely like slash love. And I didn't go with love because it's love's a strong word. But I have to like a lot to almost love every single song on the album. There cannot be one exception or it would be uh, disqualified from this list. It has to contain every all 10 of these albums... And I, this is an arbitrary number. I mean, this whole thing is a is an act of arbitration overall. But it has to contain at least one song that I would put in my top, and I scratch this out from 30 to 20 to 50, a top 20, 30, something like that song of my life. One of my favorite songs that would fall onto a list. This These records have to have at least one of those. And really, if you think about it, even let's just say it's top 50. 50 is a lot, except it's not. I mean, we hear thousands, tens of thousands of songs in our lives, 100,000 songs in our life before it's all said and done. To fall into your top 50, if it's something you genuinely care about, means it's very important to you. And uh, it needs to mean something. It has to be important. But that can be simple, too, right? It, 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 it could be a story. Or it could be a memory. It could be as simple as the liner notes and the packaging of the old record or the compact disc. Um, if I remember when I acquired the physical copy or what was going on in my life during that time, then that is a very important part of the reason that I chose these records. But again, all of these have to line up. I still have to love every song on it. It can't. I can't just be you know romanticizing the time I got a hold of Smashing Pumpkins' Siamese Dream I'm just using that as an example because it popped into my head. If if not every song on there, I love. And Siamese Dream actually should probably be on my honorable mention list. Uh, another thing that could be very important to the decision making would be significant personnel changes, which is within a band, um, within the songwriting credits, the way that the band went about uh, writing and producing and recording the record, and is very important as to 
why I did or didn't choose. Basically, it just has to be heavily, heavily influential on my entire life, not just a few aspects, not just good, bad as well. And I like a perfect example of one that doesn't hold up would be back in around, oh, hell, what would the years be? I guess it would be 94, 95, maybe even into 96. I went on a kick where I got away from the stuff that I was listening to a lot, things like Tool. And I had a weekend where I was listening to the uh, the EP Opiate from Tool. And while it checks the boxes that I like every song on it, it's also not a full length, but if it was that important, I'd let it still be there. But there's this weekend where it was just nothing but listening to Tool Opiate, and I was drinking Milwaukee's Best or Milwaukee's Best Ice, and I was getting sick, and I was way too young to be drinking. But it is, it's, it's burned into my memory as something that I, I don't, I'm not ashamed of. I don't regret. And at certain times in my life, I might have said, that, that album, that EP, Opiate, oh, geez. You know, but over the course of my life, it doesn't hold up. Those songs aren't what they, uh, they, they didn't last the entirety of at least to where I am, am at in life now. So there's so many that could make this list. And uh, we'll just get started with that right about now, shall we? So I'll start off with, of course, a Pearl Jam album is going to make it into here. And if and if I had to be completely honest and talk about my favorite albums ever, almost all the Pearl Jam albums would be on that list somewhere. But that's not what this is about. So I picked my favorite from 94 after Vitalogy came out till 90 uh, till 97 after No Code. I had kind of I'd left Pearl Jam a little bit. I, I felt like the No Code record let me down. I was spending a lot of time around campfires listening to Leonard Skinner and the Steve Miller Band and Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, stuff like that. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But I had gone away from my grunge roots because of whatever reason. And in the fall, if I remember right, of 1998, Pearl Jam released Yield. And it absolutely changed everything and brought me right back to where I once was. It was also the first year they had a full-fledged tour for the entire uh, country since they went on the Ticketmaster boycott for two or three years. And I had just turned 18. And I was just able to finally leave the house on my own. And I got tickets to the Birmingham show. And I got tickets to the Knoxville show. And the Yield record was incredible. And it was the first album where they actually got together as a band and brought music and said, here's a song. Not, hey, Eddie, will you sign off and let me you know, have your blessing? It was a whole new approach to the way they wrote songs, the way they produced songs, recorded them, and played them live. And you could hear it in this album. And it is absolutely incredible. This song is called Faithful. Again, this is in no order whatsoever. Just one of my 10 favorite and most influential albums of my life. Whether I was born or not, or later on in life, this is definitely one of them. It's Faithful from Yield, Pearl Jam from 1998. Now, around the turn of the century, I had gone back to my grunge roots and listening to so much of that music and not branching out and learning anything new, which I would eventually realize is something that was very, very important. But then all of a sudden came along the band Widespread Panic. In 2001, I bought tickets to see them at the UGC McKenzie Arena because, I don't know, why the hell not? And it was about a year or two after that that I finally realized this band is pretty damn cool and I found Till the Medicine Takes from 1999 that might as well be a greatest hits record with how much incredible music is on that album. This is One-Armed Steve, Widespread Panic, kind of took over my first 10 years of this century. Problems. 
Goddamn, the Reaper man been knocking on my door. Surprise Valley, Bears Gone Fishing, Climb to Safety, Blue Indian, The Waker, Party at Your Mama's House, Dying Man, You'll Be Fine, One Arm Steve, Christmas Katie, All Time Low, and Nobody's Loss. Every single song on that album is absolutely incredible. So around the time that I started to really get into Pearl Jam, into the mid-90s is when they started to hang out with Neil Young. And that is when the Godfather of Grunge moniker was created by whoever, however, whenever. And so, well, if Ed and the band is hanging out with Neil Young, well then clearly I need to be spending all my extra time that's not being paid attention to Pearl Jam. I mean, I need to be spending it on Neil Young. And in 1972, he released one of the finest records of that decade in the 1970s, but maybe of the entire, I don't know, final 25 years of the century. Harvest was an incredible record that featured David Crosby, Graham Nash, Linda Ronstadt, Stephen Stills, and James Taylor, all offering contributions to the record. It became a huge hit in the early 70s and captivated me with incredible liner notes and I have the original version that my dad bought back in 1972 I still have it sitting right here hanging on the wall and it is front to back incredible stuff and this is a song along with Southern Man that got the the attention we'll say of the Leonard Skinner band and the whole A. O'Neill we don't need a Southern Man around this is Alabama Breaking your back. Your Cadillac has got a wheel in the ditch and a wheel on the track. And I'm going to do my honorable mentions here in a few, and two more Neil Young records fall in to the outside looking in. In 1995, a band that I absolutely I don't want to say despise, but I really, really don't like is uh, released a record that is on my list of top 10 favorite records of all time. And it because it, it checks the boxes, it, it was influential, it meant a lot, it had cool liner notes with lyrics, and every song top to bottom I love, but that was it. That was all I ever was going to get from Radiohead for the rest of of my life now okay computer was good it's a fine album okay kid a was a fine record no problem with it i understand why people like it uh what's some of the other ones i don't remember all their names in rainbows had its moments but they've largely been making a lot of weird sounding noise for the majority of their career and they are They're an amazing band that people love all around the globe. But since this record, they've just pissed me off because they've never made anything that sounds anything remotely like this. And so, yeah, Karma Police, I got it. I get it. Fine song, fun song, neat song, whatever. I don't need it. Now, I have been a a big fan of Southern rock before I even realized I was a fan of Southern rock. Really, I mean, I was a Skinner fan early on. I'm a huge Drive-By Truckers fan who will make this list here shortly. But the Allman Brothers Band did something so unique that it's not the most intelligent music. But it is incredible from uh, from Dwayne's playing to then later on, decades later, generation later, to Warren Haynes playing. It's a simplistic style. It's where Widespread Panic gets their influences from to a certain degree. It is a simplistic style of jam band music. Um, but it just works. It just always works. And when you have a song like this... And amongst all the other ones on this incredible record from 1972, Eat a Peach, with its incredible, 
artwork, the elaborate gatefold mural the, uh, featuring that mystical fantasy landscape of peaches and mushrooms, kind of like a, a gnome garden, I guess, if you will. Just think, you know, Rock City on acid, <laughs> even more acid than you think it might be on. And then a song like this, Melissa, and if you've ever had a Melissa in your life, whether it's a mother, a daughter, a girlfriend, a cousin, a wife, well, then you know this song means a lot. And just that record is just so good. And I, same as that Harvest from 72, I have that exact same record that came from my dad's collection. It's still as pristine as it gets. It's not perfect, you know, mint, but it's pretty damn close. All right, halfway home here on my favorite records of all time. The next is also from the 1970s. It is the 1970 record from the Grateful Dead American Beauty. And the reason it is on this list is, first of all, it checks all the boxes front to back. It's incredible. But how I stumbled on it was when I was in, I think it was eighth grade. It was before high school. I had a steal your face tie-dyed shirt that I I had asked my mom to buy me because I wanted tie-dye to go along with my Baja. And some dude realized it was a steely and came up to me and said, is that a steely? And he pulled my Baja up a little bit so he could see whether it was an actual steal your face shirt. And it was. And he said, name me, f- I don't know if he said three or five, five Grateful Dead songs. Now go. And of course I couldn't do it. I just wanted a cool tie dye shirt. And I was absolutely humiliated in front of my friends. And so I went to the music store in, I think it was Camelot in the mall the next time we spent the weekend at the mall, which would have been likely days later. And I started going through the discs, trying to find songs that I could remember that uh, were Grateful Dead songs. So if he came up to me and did it again, which I think he did it a few more times, I could rattle off three or four or five Grateful Dead songs as if that was actually going to convince anybody I knew anything about the Grateful Dead. This is just the way stupid kids work. Well, in uh, at that time, I stumbled upon... American Beauty and the song Candyman, which became one of my favorite songs amongst all the songs from this incredible album. At the time, though, the movie Candyman was in the theaters, which they're recreating right now. Surprise, surprise. And um, I just chose that one because I knew I could remember Candyman, Candyman, Candyman. Try to remember another one, dude. So stupid, but it's still, it's, it's still the story. It's still the way that it unfolded and of all the records that the grateful dead have from in the dark which is one i like front to back uh working's man's dead that came out just of less than a year before this one there's very few of their albums that i love front to back and this is one of them it is at this point coming in at number six on my overall top 10 even though this is in no particular order the grateful dead and american beauty it's the Candyman on the Stone On Air podcast for the final day of hashtag the worst month ever. So I picked this one because I didn't want this to be just all nostalgia. I didn't want this to all be 1990s and, you know, 70s and nothing since then has been influential to me. I didn't want it to come across that way. So I decided to come up with what has happened in the last 10 years that has really grabbed my attention. And the first two that came to my mind, one will be honorable mention in the Black Keys and the other is the decemberist the record is called the king is dead it was released in 2011 and it was right about that time at the turn of the first decade that i 
I finally realized, God damn, man, there's so much good music here I'm not paying attention to. And I just so happened to be watching Conan back when he was still good. And the Decemberists were on playing this song live, and it it grabbed me immediately. And I thought, who is this band? And of course, they've been around for several years at that point. And I immediately fell in love with this song. And then I purchased the record and listened to it all that year in 2011 and realized, damn it, man, there's some great music that I'm not paying attention to. The King is Dead from the Decemberist falls on my top 10 albums of all time list. Such good stuff. So back in 1990, I got it right here. I don't have to go on memory. 1993, the band Cracker released their second record on Virgin uh, Records. And they originally were the, well, at least David Lowry was from Camper Van Beethoven, which is a really, really big progressive, artsy, fartsy rock band, college rock radio kind of thing when I was too young to understand what it was. I was too young to understand what it was until I was way older than when I found out what Cracker was, because Cracker was more mainstream. Camper Van Beethoven was incredible. But in 1993, they released their second album, Kerosene Hat. It had the song Low on it, which everybody loved, because it was a, a radio staple for a few minutes, and it's still a song you can find at a, a lot of places and a lot of different platforms. But I had never seen this before, the album title, Kerosene Hat, from the band Cracker. David Lowry says it comes from their early days in Richmond, Virginia, when he was with Johnny Hickman, his guitar player, living together in a dilapidated house, and the only source of heat came from two kerosene heaters. To buy more kerosene meant a cold walk to a nearby gas station, so before leaving the house, Lowry would bundle up and put on an old wool hunting cap that he called his kerosene hat. Lowry says, to this day, the smell of kerosene reminds me of the poverty and the wistful hope we had for our music. This band went on to be one of my favorite bands, top five of all time. I know every song they've ever done. I've so almost hung out with them enough to where I can convince me that they almost know me. Not really. But Johnny Hickman's a nice guy, and sometimes he'll humor me. Cracker is the only band that has opened for both the Grateful Dead and have opened for the Ramones. Now, this is from the album Kerosene Hat. It's Loser. It's a cover of Grateful Dead written by Garcia and Robert Hunter. But think about that. This band opened for the Grateful Dead and the Ramones, and they're the only band that's ever done that. And for some reason, that only recorded in uh, in mono because that's the backing vocals, not the uh, original. Anyway, I'll, uh, I didn't notice that until just now. Moving on to two more, and we'll wrap up the show. Another one of my favorite bands, Oasis, released What's the Story, Morning Glory in 1995. I remember when I got this record, it was for my, uh, or it was for Christmas 1995. And definitely maybe had been released. And and I was like, yeah, I don't know, whatever. These guys seem a little flimsy, right? Coming from the grunge era. You know, that definitely maybe stuff kind of sounded a little, eh, I don't want to use derogatory language here, but P word kind of stuff, right? Like, I don't know about that. Well, when they released What's the Story Morning Glory with Wonderwall and Champagne Supernova and all the other amazing songs from it that turned it into be one of the best rock and roll albums of the decade, certainly of the last 25 years of the century, and then this, 
Don't Look Back in Anger, which is absolutely serious talk. This song live is like going to church. It is being in a place amongst the, the people you rely on most and believe in most and all coming together to celebrate this one moment. So many bands have it. So many different people understand it within those communities, and it's difficult to, to get it if you're not there and not in on it, whether you want to be or not. But when this chorus hits and you've got a room full of people, whether it's 5,000 or 25,000, it is literally sitting in a choir. And if you don't believe me, just start YouTubing. Go down a YouTube rabbit hole and you will get lost for a long, long time uh, with all the different variations of that song from the band Oasis themselves to others who have covered it. And the final one here is a wrap up my 10 most influential records of all time. It is the Drive By Truckers the Dirty South. It was a second concept album that they had released. The first one was Southern Rock Opera a few years before. My stepbrother and some of his friends I had met through him, he's about five years older than me, and then some of his friends are even older than that. They were all a bunch of UGA kids, and so they were hanging out in Athens in the 90s when Mike Cooley and... Um, and Patterson Hood were putting together this band, and it's just raw. It's just so real. It's Southern rock in its most poetic nature that you're going to find. This record, The Dirty South, top to bottom, unbelievable. It was when I realized, oh, my God, this band isn't the Leonard Skinner of today. Because that's what you heard a lot. Oh, hey, this is a new kind of Leonard Skinner. Because they, they have some slapstick, let's get drunk and be stupid songs. But they're too smart to be considered the Leonard Skinner of this age. And I don't mean to take away from the Van Zants and the great music that the Leonard Skinner band made. This music is poetic. This concept album, The Dirty South, examines the state of the South. It unveils, unveils, excuse me, the hypocrisy, the irony, and the tragedy that still to this day continues to exist amongst the South. Nobody understands this area of the world more than this band. I, I've, I've listened to or watched some demo, uh, uh, rock docs where people talk about this music is history lessons. It should be shown to children to teach them history lessons of the South. And for a few years, they had Jason Isbell, which is now one of the biggest singer-songwriter Americana stars in the country, if not going on the world. And you already knew that this is never going to change. The album concludes with Isbel's goddamn lonely love. Though described by Isbel as a love song, Goddamn Lonely Love heavily and painfully delves into the loneliness associated with love. It is widely believed that Isbel wrote that song for Shauna Tucker, who was the bass player of the band back then. It was it was two or three members that were in their late 40s. It was Isbel, who was in his early to mid-20s, with his girlfriend Shauna in her late 20s. What could possibly go wrong, right? And the whole band of that incarnation fell apart around 2008. And both acts, both performers, the band Drive-By Truckers and Jason Isbell have proven that they can do it without each other. I just thought that it would be the truckers that made Isbell regret that. And in the end, neither of them regret that. And I love them both dearly. Honorable mention... Leonard Skinner, speaking of which, Second Helping is an incredible album front to back. 
Black Keys Brothers. Pearl Jam, the avocado album from 2006. It's self-titled, but it has an avocado on the front of it, so that's what we all call it. Weezer, the blue album. Absolutely incredible. It could have made this list. Uh, Nirvana in utero. I remember very vividly the time frame of when that album came out and the things that were going on in my life, and it easily could have made a list like this. And both Neil Young Mirrorball and Neil Young, Neil Young Harvest Moon, which was the follow-up to Harvest in 1992, which was a masterpiece in itself. So much for doing a 40, 45-minute show, right? Thank you so much for finding the show every week. Thank you so much for sticking with it and hanging with me. I know sometimes it's just a blabbering mess. A lot going on here amongst all the mess that's going on around us. Lots of ideas. The new podcast hopefully will be the second episode will be this weekend. And uh, that's all I have for this hashtag worst month ever see you later april screw you bring on may we'll see what happens i love you see ya bye